Thank you so much. Wow, what an honor and a joy um, just to, not just to receive the prayer, but to be here with you. Um, I'm going to take a second and put down the mic and put my glasses on. Uh, signifies my age, I guess. I don't know, but I'm a little self-conscious about the glasses, so I needed to, in my vanity, make sure you saw my face first without them. (laughs) So thank you for uh, the grace of that pause to now put them on. Um, So we are uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, having started this series just about three weeks ago. Um, Let me make sure this is turned on. Okay, Scotty, I can't see this. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, so, um, yeah, so Scotty's given us an overview and worked through chapter one. Daniel took us into a deeper dive regarding the overflow of worship and Paul's heart. And today I get to help us begin looking at chapter two. And we'll be focusing on verses one through eight. And if you're looking at your Bible instead of this slide up here, um, then you'll notice that it seems like stopping in chapter or in verse eight seems a little like halting mid-sentence. And so I just want to thank Scotty for not leaving teaching on the role of women in the church up to me, (laughs) but saving that for for next week. But um, I do just want to alert you at the very end, we're going to wrap a couple of those verses back in, maybe just giving you a small foreshadowing of what is to come. So it looks like you're stopping in the middle of a paragraph because you are, um, but this is where we're going today. So let's just read the scripture together. Uh, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So um, I just returned from three weeks in Europe and um, the Middle East. And uh, while I was in London, my first stop was London. I went to London, then Istanbul, then I was in a couple of cities in northern Iraq, and then I was in Cyprus. So it was quite the, quite the tour. And uh, while I was in London, I thought, you know, I think it would be okay for me to rent a car. And I've done this before, you know, I have driven on the other side of the road, I know how to drive a stick shift, which most of the rental cars will be, but in the early morning hours, being groggy from jet lag and still dealing with some effects of a a car accident um, that impacted my vision and my brain, 
uh, the roads just did not make sense, and I could not manage reading the signs in time to get in the right direction. And so after I ended up in some random parking garage, um, (laughs) without knowing how I really got there, I paid my way to get out of it and found my way back to the rental car agency and gave them the car back. And I said, this is not going to happen, not today, not on this trip. From that point on, I became more and more thankful that I was not driving anywhere on this trip. As we moved from city to city and country to country, sometimes we were on the right side of the road, sometimes we were on the left side of the road, and you know, when we got to Cyprus, we were just going straight down the middle. And there were roads that, like, clearly these were made for one car at a time. But there, was all, there were always two cars coming straight down the middle. And you never really knew if they were going to, when they were going to move over. And when they moved over, if they were going to go to the right or the left. It seemed totally arbitrary and up to the driver at any point in time. Amazing that we did not get into an accident. Um, but it seemed to work. I still don't understand the laws of the road, um, but I came out alive. So that was what was important, right? So even when I was walking and trying to cross the street, I was confused. Like, do I turn to the right? Do I look right, then left, or left, then right? And I just sometimes felt paralyzed even to try to get around. So I, I was thinking about this and how I felt and This word came to me that I just love this word. I felt discombobulated. (laughs) Do you know this word? Like, I remember my, my husband, he loves big words. He's just like, he's a language guy, right? So even when my kids were very tiny, he would use all these big words. And I remember my three-year-old walking down the hallway one day and just saying, I feel very discombobulated today. You know, I'm like, what? So I was thinking about this word, discombobulated, and uh, you know, Webster says it just simply means to be confused or in disorder. And I'm a language arts teacher by training, and so I started thinking about this word, and I'm like, discombobulated, dis means, like, this is a prefix that means the opposite of, like, who has ever used the word combobulated? Like, like, this is where my train of thought goes late at night, just letting you in. So, so I'm thinking, like, is combobulated even a word? Like, is that real? So I looked it up, and it is. I don't know if anyone uses it, but it simply means to, imagine this, put together in order, right? To bring something out of a state of confusion or disarray. It is also described as the act of composing oneself and to compose, to organize, to design, or to arrange. And I like this, to reverse the effect of discombobulation. So I feel like this is what Timothy was being commissioned to. (laughs) You know, to recombobulate the church in Ephesus. And as Scotty shared with us in the past weeks, the church in Ephesus was in a bit of disarray. 
It was kind of like some people were driving on the left, some people were driving on the right, some people were driving right down the middle, and clashes were bound to happen. Confusion had erupted, both within the church and outside of it. Not only were the believers confused about what they actually believed or what was being taught, but those outside of the church were surely just as confused as to what exactly the Christians now stood for. You know, who were these new teachers that had come in? Why had division uh, erupted? And what was this gospel that was being preached through their words and their actions? And was it really good news? Like, it didn't seem to make sense at that moment in time. So I think it's, it's even more important, like, as we enter chapter 2, it's important that we remember what the essence of Paul's letter was, like what his main point was. And I'll, fair warning, I read the end of books before I read the the beginning in the middle. I always want to know what happens at the end. So here's the ending, right? Like here's the ending of my talk today. Paul's main point, remove the obstacles, take away the barriers that are preventing people, both Jew and Gentile, from seeing the truth of Jesus's message and advancing the work of God um, that he himself set out for us to do. Paul's reminding Timothy that there's a way to remain faithful in the call and that we don't need to be tossed about to and fro, that we can stay centered. And he's to call the Ephesian church back to this, to bring the organization and the structure back in such a way that we remember what the main thing is. The main thing is that we want to share this message of good news. And we want people to find a way um, to get there to understanding. So let's dive in um, to this passage. So we'll start just with the first couple of verses. Um, And so I'll read this again. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So wherever there is a, a then or a therefore in scripture, we always need to look back to understand what the connection is, right? Do you know the saying, like, wherever there is a therefore, ask what it's there for, right? (laughs) Did you learn that at some point in time? So here, as Paul is going to begin laying out instructions for Timothy, we need to remember, again, why are these instructions being given? So as a reminder... um, There was false teaching that had made its way into the church. There were arguments and disputes over what was the correct view. Believers were not necessarily walking in love towards one another or those around them. There was a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the Torah or the law, and people were depending on their own ways or seeking to find salvation through works or even like we talked about the genealogies, you know, rather than a new understanding of salvation through Jesus. And all of this resulted in confusion in what they actually believed and therefore how they behaved. So Paul says, I urge you then, because of all of these reasons, this array that has happened because of the discombobulation that is now in the church, 
first of all, um, the most important thing that I'm going to say is pray. And ultimately, we remember, like I put down here, just a reminder from 1 Timothy, um, that the idea was that they needed to get back to advancing God's work, right? Which is, which he said, Paul said, it is by faith. The ability to advance God's work, it has something to do with our faith, not um, all of these other things that might be being talked about. And so um, the way that teaching was going in Ephesus, it was not operating out of faith, but human speculation, controversial teachings, past traditions, most likely even simple preferences of thought, of one's uh, own beliefs, maybe a few conspiracy theories thrown in here and there, starting to sound familiar, the ability for those who were most eloquent in speech to convince others of their position. Like, we see these things happening today in a lot of areas as well. Um, so it's, it's not unusual. But, but how do we get back to keeping our focus on the idea of advancing God's work? Are these things actually advancing God's work. So the fact that Paul begins his set of instructions with prayer sets a priority and an emphasis on prayer being the foundation of all other work. There's a way that we must approach the work of the kingdom, and it is not with human wisdom or strength, but a way that relies on understanding what is the heart of the Father, what is the power of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, how are we led by the Spirit. And prayer is not only the way that we commune with God, but as we'll see through this passage, it becomes a primary source of being able to spread the gospel. And it's out of this place of prayer um, that we receive instruction and understanding to move into any kind of action. So Paul says, um, I want you to pray with petitions. Let's see, where are they? Where are they all? Um, Petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. So the idea here is that, you know, Paul is... um, Honestly, it really doesn't even matter, I think, to Paul, like how you pray. It's not the type of prayer that he is concerned about. The result of prayer is actually not even in the way that we pray. Do you know that? Like the way that you pray doesn't matter in terms of getting a result of prayer. Like God knows our needs before we even bring them before him. He knows what we're going to speak, what we're going to say before it even comes out of our mouth. But it's when we posture our heart in a way of dependence and longing towards his ways that he begins to move. God comes where he is wanted. One of my favorite teachers, John Tyson in New York City, has a whole series about this, like he titled it, God Comes Where He Is Wanted. And I really believe that that's true. There's scriptures that say, you know, he, he waits, he's patient, and he waits until he hears the cries of his people. There's something about us coming and expressing our desire for him in every space and in every place that moves the heart of God and allows him 
um, to begin to act in the earth. So even though all types of prayer are, even though the specific types of prayer are not important in this context, let's just take an aside and just um, for learning's sake, just define some of these. So petitions would be an appeal or a request. It's often uh, formal, you know, we use this word like in the legal sense, um, bringing something before an authority that has the power to do something about a request that we have. So there's often a sense of desperation when we are petitioning God, like we have a need and we want to see it answered. So an example might be praying for someone who is sick or asking God to repair a marriage that feels broken or to provide kind of resource for for someone in need. A lot of times these are the types of requests that end up on a list that we share with the church or we share with other people so that we can agree in prayer about these things. We're petitioning the Lord and we're asking him to come into a specific situation and answer a specific request. Prayers in this context are really just talking about this conversation, this ongoing conversation that we have with God. So there's an intentionality of time and space and regularity. There's a purposefulness to our life and prayer. It has to do with our relationship, our intimate relationship with God, that we spend as much time listening as we do speaking, and we're often led by the Spirit in these moments in terms of topics or themes. Intercession, I've talked about here um, in the past, but just very simply defined, intercession is the idea of standing between two parties until peace is made. And sometimes it's not even uh, something that we speak, but a posture of our heart that says, I'm going to stand in this place before God on behalf of this person, this situation, or this generation even, until I see the promises of God come to pass. There's an idea of co-laboring with God in this process over a long period of time. This idea of standing in the gap. And so we might be interceding for our city. We might be interceding for family members who have yet to come to know the Lord. There are those those long-term you know, situations that, yeah, God can come and suddenly do something, but there's an idea of, like, I'm going to stand in this place and cry out night and day until I see God move in a way that I feel like this has been answered. And then the final one is just thanksgiving. So an expression of gratitude to God. And there's great value in learning to be thankful in all situations, right? But our our thanksgiving can also become a prayer of a future hope. When we bless others in prayer with what we hope to see in their lives, then we're praying prayers of thanksgiving. You know, I can say, God, I just thank you for my neighbors, Lord, that you are going to provide for their needs, that there is a job for them waiting, and that you will direct them into the right place at the right time to make that happen. We turn our prayers into a prayer of thanksgiving and actually speak out what we hope in the future will come to be um, in agreement with 
uh, what we believe are God's desires in those situations. So all types of prayer um, for all people. So, and again, just remembering that this letter is one seamless entity and not just, you know, different chunks divided up that we can take out of context. But just going back and remembering again in 1 Timothy that the goal of this command that Timothy was to bring um, to the church in Ephesus was love. And again, starting in prayer... um, well, Timothy, he was asked to address the false teachings. He is asked to enter into a space where there's disagreement and arguments and where people are probably not very happy with one another, right? So Paul's solution to ending the division and finding unity is the way of love through prayer. He knew that prayer would clarify their perspective, that it would give them understanding from God, and that it would ultimately change their heart for people. It's hard to stay mad at people when you pray for them. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if you're really mad at someone, you resist the idea of praying for them, don't you? Like, I will not pray for them, you know? Because not only does it mean that maybe something, God might do something on their behalf, but you know it's going to change your heart towards them as well. Because all of a sudden we begin to have this different perspective. We begin to have compassion. We begin to put ourselves into their shoes and we begin to see um, things in a different way. So I know uh, a few weeks ago, um, Scotty shared with you about an app that we created called Holy Ground for prayer walking. If you were here, you kind of saw that. So when we um, started creating this app, we began asking the question, like, what would happen if every street of every neighborhood in every city across the globe was prayed for? Like, what would actually happen? What could God do if we were actually praying in every space, in every place with all types of prayer for all people? It's this passage, right? (laughs) So what I believe and what I hope for is that as people begin to walk and pray with that app, that they're going to begin to see their neighborhood with new eyes, that they're going to meet new people, that they're going to enter into conversations and hear stories that they would have never known before, that they're going to begin to ask questions and posture themselves as a learner in their own communities, that the needs in the community are going to be recognized and innovative ways of solving problems may begin to be found. That people would begin to work for the good of their community to, um, together with one another regardless of their beliefs, values, or other differences. So we can grumble and complain about what we don't like, what we're tired of seeing about the people that we don't agree with or what is causing our city to fall apart. Or we can pray for all people in all places at all times and allow God to renew our hearts and see peoples and neighborhoods and cities um, as he sees them, giving us fresh hope that God's intention could actually be something different from that which currently is. So, you know, what's interesting to me is I'm sure at some point in time we've talked about the Moravians in different ways here. Um, And so Count Zinzendorf, with the Moravian community, this was actually a strategy that he used. You know, when 
when they came in and began to live on his land as refugees, there was a great deal of arguing and disagreement among them. And it was in trying to find a solution to this that Zinzendorf set up prayer watches and drew this new community in practicing, uh, into practicing a rule of life that led them to not only begin to live peaceably with one another, but it eventually birthed one of the greatest missionary movements of all time. And Zinzendorf understood that um, he needed to point those who were in disagreement with one another to a greater purpose and to a higher calling, to one that, that had all of the wisdom and all of the understanding. And in that place of prayer, we can find that kind of unity because, again, the Spirit will clarify all things for us and the Spirit will teach us truth, even in that place of prayer. So um, the scripture goes on. Um, well, before I read the verse, I'm going to say, I'm going to, let's go back to, sorry, I'm going to stay here for a second longer. So to refocus on um, these kingdom purposes, I think is a really important distinction because we can become so encumbered by our own beliefs about what's right or wrong or what will fix the mess or the chaos around us that we forget there's a plan at work and a, great, and a wisdom that is greater than ours. And God is actually in the process of restoring all things, and he wants us to partner with him in that work. But it takes faith. Going back to that, you know, First Timothy again, like we advance the kingdom of God through faith. And faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so through faith, we're able to grasp the bigger picture of God's heart for all people. So um, again, he says, I urge you then that you make all types of prayer for all people, um, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So Paul specifies that um, we're to pray for kings and the pray for kings and those in authority, not to legislate the kingdom through politics, but for the natural ordering of what is good and right to be in the land without corruption or oppression. And the result of praying for all people, including those in authority, is this, that we will be able to live peacefully. So there's another scripture that you may be familiar with in the Old Testament that sounds very familiar to this. The Jewish people had been exiled into Babylon and were looking for a way out. There were false prophets that came in telling them that rescue would come at any moment, and the deceptive teachings were leading the people to behave in ways contrary to what would actually bring about peace and prosperity for them. So enters Jeremiah, um, telling them what most probably did not want to hear. Just like they probably didn't want to hear what Timothy had to say after being instructed by Paul. Um, So he says that, Jeremiah says this, Um, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished 
and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And this Jeremiah 29, 7 is the last part there. Uh, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. It's um, in different versions, it's just um, the words are just slightly different. So one version says, also do good things for the city I sent you to. Pray to the Lord for the city you are living in because if there is peace in that city, you will also have peace. The NIV says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The New Living Translation at the end says, For its welfare will determine your welfare. So regardless of the words that are being used, the peace, the prosperity, the welfare, um, the call that Jeremiah is giving is a call to settle in. It's not a call to try to escape or to find a way out, but it's a call to settle in, to be planted, to be rooted, to build, to um, have children and grandchildren and so on, that it could be that this is the land that you will live in for generations yet to come. And so the call... Um, is to pray, to pray for the city's welfare, to pray for the city's peace, to pray for the city's prosperity, so that God would bless all who lived there, including the Jewish people. They were to pray for the blessing uh, for those who held them captive. They were to pray for blessing for their enemies. They were to pray for those who they did not agree with and for those whose lifestyles did not match their own. But Jeremiah made it clear, just as Paul was making it clear to Timothy, that the way our communities and our cities will find peace is through prayer. So in this passage in Jeremiah, that word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom, I'll just read this, it says it's a Hebrew term that is rich in history and meaning. In its simplest form, it means peace, prosperity, harmony, wholeness, completeness, tranquility, and welfare. So you see some of the different words of when that was translated out. They're all in their peace, prosperity, welfare. However, in the Old Testament, it assumed an interconnectedness between people, nature, and God. So there's something much broader and deeper about this word shalom than the way that we just interpret it as peace or even prosperity or even welfare. It's talking about a place where all people would flourish and where that flourishing would allow for the obstacles and the barriers to the gospel to be removed. And it's, it's talking about an interconnectedness of all people regardless of beliefs. Like there's something important to understand that we as the church in Hillsboro 
are connected. We're interconnected to the community of Hillsborough. And if you look broader to the region, we're interconnected with the people of the Portland, the greater Portland metropolitan region. And how the city goes, we go. How we go, the city goes. Like we impact and affect one another. And so the question is, do we care enough about the work of the gospel to grab a hold of this perspective that teaches us that we are all interconnected? That my own ability to flourish and to come into um, being all that God created is actually dependent upon you being able to flourish and come into all that God created you to be. And that it's also uh, connected to my liberal neighbor being able to do the same, and that woman at work that won't stop talking about Trump to be able to do the same, and the homeless man on the street to be able to do the same, or, you know, the kid that's in foster care, or the inmate in prison, or the elderly man that is dying of cancer, or the lesbian couple down the street. You get the picture that everyone's flourishing is dependent upon one another. I can't walk into completeness and wholeness until you walk into completeness and wholeness. There's a communal aspect to this idea of peace and prosperity and the welfare and the well-being of a community um, that, that means that we need one another. And so this perspective, grabbing a hold of this perspective, allows us to move into a heart posture that says, okay, I get it. I'm going to pray for all people. But not only because it's essential to my own well-being and for my flourishing, but because this is God's original intention that all people would flourish and that all people would be cared for, that all people would be given basic human rights to, to be loved and to find a way to be restored by God. That this shalom, this idea of shalom, is actually what we are praying when we pray the prayer and say, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's shalom that we're praying for. And so certainly... Um, We have all kinds of preferences and thoughts and opinions of our own. But when we made a choice to follow Jesus, we became a people in exile. Right? We became foreigners in a land that is no longer the place that we call home that we long for. And yet we are to settle in it. We are to build and to plant and to pray with everything in us holding a faith that says God has a greater plan than what we see right now. And you know, I I know that you know that even in the most desolate of places, for some of you, you're thinking that is downtown Portland, uh, God is everywhere. And he goes everywhere that we go. We are actually the carriers of his presence in the earth. And this is what I think we really have to understand is that we are not of this world, that we are aliens and foreigners here, that we are walking as those from another land, yet we've been placed here for a time and a season with great purpose, each and every one of us. I love the story in Acts 17 
when Paul is speaking to leaders in Athens and he used their statue of an unknown God to describe who God really is, right? The one that they were desiring could actually be found and Paul was telling them about it. So he took something in the culture that could have been an offense to those in the church, you know, the idea of of idol worship and praying to other gods or whatever, and he turned it into a moment of teaching about the true revelation of Jesus. And further in this passage, he tells them this. He says, And he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. There's something uh, about this great plan that God has, that he has been able to set each person in a particular geographical location at a particular time in history so that they would seek God and have the ability to find him. And there's something that each of us holds that not only um, that we would have the very best opportunity to find God in this place where we dwell, but that we are placed in these spaces because we are the best chance for others to find God as well. There's that interconnectedness. And so it's important It's like life and death important that we understand that we're here for a reason and that the first place we have to go is into prayer to discover like how is it that the Lord wants us to be used in a way that we actually reflect who he is and what his kingdom is all about. Ephesians 2 tells us just in a little different way. You know, it says, we've been saved by grace, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmen. It says, you know, it goes on and says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So there's something for us to discover along the way. And it doesn't mean that we all go into full-time ministry or we do some you know, incredible, you know, work that's going to change the world. But just in our daily lives, in every space and in every place, the Spirit may be leading us into conversations or into actions or into relationships that ultimately are going to help other people find their way to God. So he says that um, as we pray, We will live our lives in this kind of shalom with all godliness and holiness. It's the posture that we're taking and how we allow our actions to be shaped. This is um, this idea is the the idea that we live with an awareness that God is at work in and through and among us at all times. And we look for his purposes, we look for his plans, we look for his ways, and we follow his spirit. And then this idea of holiness, we allow his character to change and transform us on a daily basis. Holiness is a constant work that is going on within us. We give ourselves over to be conformed more and more to his image every day. And in that way, we partner with him in his work.
So there's this passage, um, and I'm, I'm wrapping up. First uh, Peter 2, 9 through 12. I love this passage. It just um, speaks to uh, our identity um, in, in Christ, right? It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are not of this world. We are a holy nation. We are sojourners and pilgrims in this land, but our lives bear witness to the work of God in the earth. And even when there's opposition and it looks like people are not understanding who we are or what we are about, it is how we conduct our lives that will be the witness and cause others to glorify God. This is, I think, um, the bottom line for me. Um, it goes on in First Timothy. It says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So the bottom line, God wants all people to come to a saving knowledge of him. He wants restoration. He wants human flourishing. In the end, this is the goal. That we, along with Paul, would become witnesses to those around us with the gr- of the great love of Jesus, and that our lives would be lived in such a way as to remove obstacles and barriers for those who have yet to know Him. That we would become co-laborers with Christ. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger. Or disputing. Verse 8. Paul ends this part of the instruction as he began. Very simply, I want all men to pray. I don't care how, but I want your behavior then to match up with your prayers. I want this to come together. Um, The result of the prayers he knew would be that prayer changes us. It transforms us more into his likeness so that we can reflect his goodness in the world. Prayer brings us into alignment with God's heart and thus his will. Prayer changes the atmosphere around us and creates an opening for the gospel to be heard. And prayer releases a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that people can live according to his ways. I'm going to end by reading... This passage again in the message version. 
because I think it just sums it up so beautifully. And it says this. You can read along. The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray especially for rulers and their governments to rule well so you can be quietly about our business of living simply in humble contemplation. This is the way our Savior God wants us to live. He wants not only us, but everyone saved, you know, everyone to get to know the truth that we've learned, that there's one God and only one, and one priest mediator between God and us, Jesus, who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them all free. Eventually, the news is going to get out. This and this only has been my appointed work, getting this news to those who have never heard of God and explaining how it works by simple faith and plain truth. Since prayer is at the bottom of all of this, What I want mostly is for men to pray, not shaking angry fists at enemies, but raising holy hands to God. And I want women, here we're going to verse 10, and I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God, not before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. Amen. Uh, I actually just wanted to take a moment. You know, we we pray before the service, so um, if you're part of the church, come join us sometimes. Uh, 9 a.m., we pray. But listen to Renee. We, we take time to pray together, and then we spend time at the end, and we ask the question, what, what's God saying today? Um, and just listening to you, like he told you all the stuff we were saying before you, you got to prayer this morning. Um, but some of the words that were said, like stay connected to God. If you're not hearing, listen harder. Uh, you talked about combobulated being, uh, things being in chaos and out of order. One of the groups said, we need to declutter. We need to find the things that clutter and pull us away from God for order of things and declutter what's not of him. Um, and so, uh, just to say, as we're praying and we're listening, like we're hearing the same things as Renee's sitting in her house and out on the road asking God, what do I want to say about this passage? We're hearing the same things. Uh, so God is moving. So uh, I'm just going to, for sake of time, pass over to Reuben and uh, let's continue to worship. <laughs>